Well, my name is Bethany, and as we are preparing um, for Resurrection Sunday, which is March 31st, obviously that Sunday we'll be focusing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Sunday before, we'll be taking time to focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to start with today is actually looking at the life of Jesus. Um, And there's no possible way for us to get through that um, in one message because it is so exhaustive in the Word of God. Um, But one of the things that I was reflecting on, like as I was actually thinking about just basically preaching Jesus to a group of people that obviously know and have a relationship with Jesus Christ, is I was actually thinking about how so much in our cultural Christianity is focused upon ourselves. You know, um, a good friend of mine actually said it this way. He leads another house of prayer uh, someplace else on the East Coast, and he actually said it this way. He's like, you know, he's like leading a prayer meeting. He's like, on some degree, you actually think that it's supposed to be like ministering to the Lord. He's like, have you ever realized it's actually more about the people in the room building faith, getting them inspired, getting them focused on Jesus, getting their heart, you know, almost like to get them pumped up. And hopefully the next time that they come back, they're in faith. And then you can actually pray for a city. And, you know, he was just talking about the focus. Really, ultimately, you end up, as much as you're trying to pray, you're really ministering to people and the focus is on. But really a lot with the preaching of the word. And I think specifically in America, too. I think that there's other countries that it's very different. Um, But in America, it is very much about how cool you are, how good you are, how... God wants you to have this and do this and what you're, you're calling. And, you know, all of those things are important, our identity in Christ. But the extraordinary thing is the more we see of him, the more that we look upon him, the more we understand who he is, we actually find ourselves. And we actually understand who we're created to be. The first day of our fast, actually, we were praying into um, John chapter 15, verse 1. As far as Jesus, he basically begins by saying, my father is the vine and I am a branch. And he's, he's identifying who the father is, that the father has supreme authority, that he basically lives at the mercy of the father, that he is the vine. And then from there, Jesus obviously in John 15 teaches a lot, but he begins from this place of identifying his father first. It wasn't even so much, because as you know, John 15 actually goes on to talk about how we are supposed to be fruitful and bearing fruit, and anything in our lives that's not bearing fruit, the Lord will be faithful to prune, and what the Lord wants to bring from our lives. But he begins at the foundational principle of the Father. And he's acknowledging who his Father is. And it's from that place that Jesus actually got identity. And it's from that place for all of us that looking at the Father that as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one from relationship in that place is actually where we find ourselves. So if you're struggling with insecurity, if you're struggling with fear, and you're kind of like, oh darn, she's going to preach just straight up Jesus today. Like, my needs might not get met. I guarantee that by looking upon Jesus, that every single need that you have in your life, everything that you struggle with, that the answer that you'll actually find there, and it's actually where we find liberty in beholding him that we become more like him. It's extraordinary. It's such a simple principle, but the mystery of the kingdom is... So anyway, I'm actually pretty... I actually was thinking, I was like, two weeks, how are we going to get... Because where we're actually going to start today is, number one, the importance of Jesus being the supreme issue. Like, the supreme issue. Even more... Most of us in this place, you might even be able to identify with this. In our culture and society, the concept of God is pretty well accepted. 
like God, that there is a God, you know, and to be honest, I think, and I, I guess I would like to think because it's how I was as a child, I think most people in the tenderness of childhood years, there is something inside of them that, that is drawn toward God. I, I from the, the earliest age, I was probably four or five years old, I used to get out of my, my parents prayed for me, I was raised in a Christian home, I would get out of my bed at night and literally kneel and be like, I just want to hear your voice. I, I definitely, my heart was inclined saying, I want to know God. I remember responding to altar calls, like, you know, the pastor would have an altar call, and I'd be, like, up there crying, you know, all of six years old, like, <laughs> you know, weeping. And the pastor would say, why are you crying? And I'd say, I go all the way up to my attic, because it's the highest point in the house, and I think that I'm going to hear God more clearly, and I can hear his voice, <laughs> you know. I'm like, I just, want to, I just want him to speak to me. But I think to some degree, every child has that, that knowing before kind of life and circumstance and all of those things get to you, the inclination of, God, I want to know you. I was created for fellowship with you. Um, and it's really from that place that we're going to look today, number one, the question of the importance of looking upon Jesus and knowing Jesus. But really where we're going to even start is with the preexistence of Jesus and the Trinity, um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But A.W. Tozer actually said, what do you think of Christ? And what are you going to do with Christ? Every question we might ever have can be boiled down to the subject of Jesus Christ. That's what A.W. Tozer said. And just as a premise before we kind of go anywhere else, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Matthew chapter 24, uh, chapter 24 verse 1 through, through 5. It's actually Jesus, and he's speaking, and he actually ends up speaking about the end times. And when, um, in verse 24, he sa it says, then, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the building of the temple. And Jesus said to, said to them, Do you not see all of these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And this is what Jesus answered. He said, and Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. So basically Jesus is giving a warning right here. And what Jesus is saying is the issue of deception is going to be over who is Jesus. The supreme conflict at the end of the age, I'm not saying we're there, could be 30, 40, 60 years, but ultimately as we're leading to that point, it's the issue of who is Jesus. Jesus is saying, take heed that no one deceives you. And he actually doesn't just say, just deceives you. He doesn't kind of leave you going, deceive about what? Like deceive about, you know, the stars and the sky and the planets and how many planets there are. He's, he narrows it down and says, for many will come in my name saying that I am the Christ and will, and once again he says, and will deceive many. Satan will oppose. The one thing that Satan will do is he will oppose the revelation of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it's really the one thing that we need to guard and preserve and fight for in our lives is the understanding of who Jesus is. Some of you, I'm not looking for a show of hands, but you, if you even think about it, as we, these two weeks, are actually going over the topic of Jesus... What you'll actually begin to find is that in prayer, you may address God, 
You may say that you have a desire for God, but in many ways, a relationship actually with Jesus or an understanding of Jesus, even beyond, well, he died on the cross for my sins, but I could be reconciled to God. So isn't like the main point God. So uh, it's almost like Jesus has become null and void and almost slightly insignificant. Like at G- at the, around Easter, we'll focus on the cross a little. And so we get a little more acquainted with, thank you for dying for my sins that I'm saved because of. But in everyday life, our awareness, our sensitivity, our understanding, and our communication, our, our intimate relationship with Jesus is often, I'm not saying for everyone, but for a large number of Christians, the issue of Jesus almost becomes abstract and foreign and distant. Um, also in Matthew 16, verse 13 through 18, I'm sure all of you are familiar with this passage of scripture. I'm actually not going to take the time to read it in entirety, but this is where Jesus basically comes to his disciples saying, who do men say that I am? And the disciples, you know, go on to say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elisha, some say Jeremiah, some say a prophet. And then Jesus basically presses them again and say, but who do you say that I am? And this is where Simon Barjona, who actually became Peter, answered and said, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And what does Jesus say to him from that point? Most of us are familiar with this passage. He actually goes on to say, and he said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter. But upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He goes on to say that whatever you loose in heaven will be loosed on earth, and whatever you bind in heaven will be bound on earth. He begins to then talk about the place of authority. So he's talking, number one, about the establishment and the prevailing of the church, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that it's from that place of the revelation of Jesus Christ, because that is exactly what just happened. Peter said, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus goes on to say, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this. He had a revelation. His spiritual eyes were opened to see Jesus. And if there is anything that we could ask for, it's that our spiritual eyes would be open to see Jesus. I would even, I would encourage you over the next week, the next two weeks, to even wrestle over this issue of understanding Jesus And really, ultimately, what kind of relationship and how do we relate? Just like A.W. Tozer said, that who is Christ and what are you going to do with him? See, many of us have uh, an intellectual understanding. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Jesus is my Savior. You know, we kind of work through the motions of that and we get it intellectually. But then uh, as it comes to the wrestling through of, now what are we going to do with him? And even furthermore, how do we relate to him? So this is the passage in Matthew 16, 13 through 18, that where I kind of want to begin from here is the understanding that this, upon this rock, the revelation of Jesus, is the way that the church actually will be the prevailing influence in the earth. And without that, we actually won't. But even the authority of prayer is from the place of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's start actually uh, with the pre-existence of Jesus in the Trinity. Um, from the word of life, it's a it's systematic theology. This is actually one of the statements, and this is actually part of why we're going to begin there. Um, he says that without the premise of the pre-existence of Jesus, there can be no talk of the incarnation of Jesus. 
So unless you first are fully convinced and aware and understand that there was the pre-existence of Jesus, you actually can't even move ahead to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through several scriptures. But number one, when I say the word Trinity, in, in, in its simplest form, the doctrine of the Trinity is, is that God is one. Oftentimes we'll actually hear people say God the Father, and then we think of Jesus as the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. But all throughout scripture, and we'll look through at several passages today, we actually find it, they each are God. They are the Godhead. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that they operate. It's three in one. And we'll actually see that in Scripture where Jesus is referred to as God, the Holy Spirit is referred to as God, and God the Father is referred to as God, uh, as three in one. Um, specifically, if you want to turn to Philippians 1, verse 2, this is where this passage of Scripture says, Grace to you and peace from our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So this is where he's saying, from God, from God our Father. God our Father. And then Jesus as God in Titus 2, 13 through 14. This is where he references and says, looking for the, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, when you're reading it in the English, it, you kind of almost would begin to think that he's referencing great God and our Savior. But listen, listen carefully. And glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, he's referring to one person, who, this one person, our great God and, and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. And then referencing the Holy Spirit in Acts 5, 3 through 4, um, verse 3, starting, says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your in your own control? Why have you conceived this in your heart? Why have you lied to men, not lied to men, but to God? So he's referencing the Holy Spirit as God. You can actually see this all throughout Scripture. There's many, many um, other reference points. But let, actually, if you turn to Isaiah... Chapter 45, this is a, a beautiful illustration. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. This is where the prophet Isaiah is prophesying, and he's saying, Look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall, shall take its oath. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are increased against him. In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and, sh and shall glory. This actually, this passage of scripture is then referenced in Philippians 2. Again, we're at 
first of all, just taking the premise of acknowledging the Trinity as far as the relationship between all of these being three in one, that there is no separation. Because now in Philippians, um, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, Therefore God has also ex- highly exalted him and given him, Jesus, the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, we just, this is actually, he's referencing Isaiah, and he's quoting Isaiah, that every knee shall bow. In Isaiah, God was speaking of himself, that every knee shall bow. And now here we see in Philippians, now with the incarnation of Christ, we're actually seeing that he's referencing, saying, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That place of the relationship that they are one and the same, that that which was prophesied in Isaiah and in the place where God was speaking that every knee would bow, that he was speaking of himself who is Jesus, the, the Godhead incarnate. And then lastly, we actually find in... Um, Actually, I'm going to skip just for sake of time. Let's, let's jump to Hebrews 1.8. This is, once again, where we'll just see the example of this relationship between them. In 1.8, says, But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God. He's speaking to the Son. This is the Father speaking to the Son, saying, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Speaking to the Son. Extraordinary. And then there's actually one other. Um, it was... Let me just find before we move on to our next... It was Norman Geiser. It's in his book called The Trinity, um, and it's actually part two, where he says, The doctrine of the Trinity holds that God is one, and and that there is is no distinction between between God as as far as God being one in himself, but the persons are distinct in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um. Really quickly, I just want to move on to this issue of Jesus being Messiah. Most of you know that some scholars would actually argue and suggest that in Scripture that there's more than 300 prophetic words in the Old Testament and New Testament, because obviously that even before the birth of Jesus, you have John the Baptist who is prophesying of Jesus before it's actually he's made manifest to the world. But 300 passages of Scripture that are actually prophesying and declaring Jesus as the Messiah, and that those 300 scriptures are actually fulfilled in Jesus's life. So you actually find, if you're going to read like the Old Testament, that we actually can't even relate to God or understand God without understanding that all throughout Old Testament history, as early as Genesis, that Jesus was being declared and that Jesus was being prophesied of his coming, that that is ultimately the culmination of what all of human history was groaning for, and then his return is ultimately the climax of human history. I'm actually just going to go over a couple of these passages for you, which are extraordinary when you kind of, like I said, 300, we're not going over 300 today. We'll go over like maybe 20. (laughs) Um, In Genesis 3, 
15, the Messiah would be born of a woman, which Jesus fulfilled. And, and it's actually written in Matthew 1, 20, um, and Galatians 4, 4. In Micah 5, 2, it was prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah 4, uh, 7, 14, it was prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. In Genesis 12, 3, in Genesis 22:18, the Messiah would come from the line of Abraham. In Genesis 17:19, and then Genesis 21:12, that the Messiah would be the descendant of Isaac. In Numbers 24:17, that the Messiah, Messiah would be the descendant of Jacob. It goes all through the lineage as far as uh, who he actually would be born from the line of. Um, and then Hosea 11:1, 1, Messiah would spend time, a season of time, in Egypt. Then in Jeremiah 31, 15, a massacre of children would happen at the Messiah's birth. Isaiah 43 through 5, a messenger would prepare the way for the Messiah, as we all know, John the Baptist. Uh, Psalms 69, 8, Isaiah 53, 3, the Messiah would be rejected by his own people. Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Messiah would be a prophet. Malachi 4, 5 through 6, the Messiah would be preceded by Elisha. Can you imagine? It's all laid out in Scripture. That none of it was even a mystery. That when you look at the life of Jesus, that it was fully foretold and declared all throughout the Old Testament. It is extraordinary. In Psalms 2, verse 7, the Messiah would be declared as the Son of God. Isaiah 11:1, 1, the Messiah would be, called, uh, would be called a Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, Isaiah 9, 1 through, uh, 1, 1 through 2, the Messiah would bring light to Galilee. In Psalms 78, 2, 2 through 4, the Messiah would speak in parables, like that detailed of how the Messiah would teach and preach. It's extraordinary. Isaiah chapter 61, um, 1 through 2, that the Messiah would be sent to heal the brokenhearted. Psalm 110.4, the Messiah would be the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 2.6 and Zechariah 9.9, the Messiah would be called king. Psalm 8.2, the Messiah would be praised by little children. Psalm 41.9 and Zechariah 11.12, the Messiah would be betrayed. Zechariah 11.12, the Messiah's price money would be used to buy a potter's field. Psalm 35:11 the Messiah would be falsely accused. Isaiah 53:7 the Messiah would be silent before his accusers. Even his response was prophesied. It's extraordinary the way that he's revealed all through scripture. I mean this is we're still Old Testament. <laughs> um let's see Isaiah 50 verse 6 that the Messiah would be spat upon and struck. Psalm 35, 19, and Psalm 69, 4, the Messiah would be hated without cause. Isaiah 53, 12, the Messiah would be crucified with criminals. Psalm 69, 21, the Messiah would be given vinegar to drink. Psalm 22, 16, Zechariah 12, 10, the Messiah's hands and feet, feet, feet would be pierced. Psalm 22, 7 through 8, the Messiah would be mocked and ridiculed. Psalm 22:18 soldiers would gamble for the Messiah's garments. Exodus 12:46 and Psalms 34:20 the Messiah's bones would not be broken. Even the detail of his crucifixion, of how he would die. 
Psalm 22, 1, the Messiah would be, uh, would be forsaken by God. When that, that brief moment when, the Lord, when God the Father had to look away. Uh, Psalm 109, 4, the Messiah would pray for his enemies. Zechariah 12, 10, soldiers would pierce the Messiah's side. Luke 53, 9, Messiah would be crushed. Oh, I'm sorry, the, the Messiah would be buried with, with the rich. Psalm 16:10 and Psalms 49:15 the Messiah would resurrect from the dead the prophet the prophecy of his resurrection. In Psalms 24:7 the Messiah would ascend to heaven. Psalm 63:18 and Psalm 110 the Messiah would be seated at the right hand of God. In Isaiah 53:5 the Messiah would be the sacrifice for sin. Absolutely extraordinary. All, so Jesus isn't kind of like a side issue of like, I accepted him in my heart, so now I have a way to God. Jesus is the supreme issue. And he ultimately, and this is actually where we're going to move, is this understanding of the Messiah, of us needing a Messiah and us needing a Savior and the understanding of his role, not only in history, but his whole role presently. Um, so let's actually turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Some of you may be familiar with this passage of scripture. This is actually where it's speaking of the historical Melchizedek, the priest, and how he was a type and a shadow of Christ who was to come. And picking up actually in chapter 7, it says, For this is Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, First being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning, beginning of days nor end of life, but made like, a son, like the son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoil. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a command to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they, ha though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose gene genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. Verse 7, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by, by the better. I'm sorry, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, moral men receive tithes, but there, there he receives them, of whom it is a witness of his life. Verse 9, even Levi, who, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. Verse 10, for he was still in the loins of his father when Mel Melchizedek met him. Verse 11, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what furthermore need, need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Abraham, of Aaron, sorry. Verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. 
For he of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord rose from Judah, of which Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. Verse 17, for he testifies that you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on, on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a better hope through which we can draw near to God. And as much as he who was, was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented, they were prevented by death from continuing. But he because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Verse 25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26, For such a high priest was was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not, need, does not need daily all those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as highest priest men who have weakness, but the word of oath which came after the law appoints the Son, who has been perfected forever. The extraordinary demonstration and understanding of Jesus as our high priest. That he stands at that place and actually makes intercession. And that because of his one sacrifice, that we can be reconciled to God. um, I actually love John Piper. Actually, what he references, which might sound actually extremely harsh to some of you in this room when I say this. But the understanding, he actually kind of goes through and questions of what is it that we're being saved from? Like, most of us will say, well, I'm saved from sin. But we actually don't have the understanding that not only are you saved from sin, like, I as a young child, in all honesty, I can remember, let's just be honest, at the age of, like, 12 and 13, really, like, what kind of nasty, grody sin do you got going on? Like, it wasn't like I had to be delivered from a drug addiction. It wasn't like I had to be delivered from some kind of... um, other addiction in my life. But at that young age, I can, rem- I can remember encountering the presence of God in such a clear, no one probably in this room even knows the band Petra. Anybody know the band Petra? Yeah. <laughs> Petra, take me into the Holy of Holies. <laughs> no, seriously. Like that was like one of my first real encounters where I said the sinner's prayer as a child. 
And even as I conveyed to you, as a child, I had a hunger and I had a longing after God. But there I was, you know, in my preteen years, and there was a worship song playing, and it was the first time for myself that in the place of worship, that I actually felt the, the, the presence of God, the blood of Jesus cleanse me. I'll never forget the room that I walked out of. I remember walking out and going, I feel like I took a bath on the inside. I mean, how do you even describe that in words? But you know what? As, as, even as a child, from places of anger, from places of hurt, from even places of like self-distortion and insecurity, from places of fear, I literally walked outside the door going, my insides feel different. Like, how do you describe that to anybody? So we, most of us can identify the whole, and to be honest, I mean, I was saved, I, I hate to give you a graphic picture, but in all honesty, without Jesus intervening at a really young age in my life, I definitely would have been completely mentally ill. I was already very much on the road of such fear, gripped, paralyzed, tormented, could not live a normal life, a fear, absolute fear. And as much as, you know, as a kid, I had an outgoing personality. I definitely, you talk to my parents, I pushed their buttons hugely because I pushed the limits on everything and thought I was boss. But, you know, we have a fallen nature from having, you know, parents that weren't, what? <laughs> parents that weren't broken. I, I, ended, I mean, parents that weren't pro- perfect. I definitely had a broken identity. The place of insecurity and fear that I was completely tormented, that I just... But the Lord delivered me, like completely delivered me. I, I think I was probably 12 years old, like when I sincerely had deliverance. And that without that, I would not have been clothed in my right mind. I would have had to be admitted to a psych ward because of the amount of activity internally that was tormenting me. So I think most of us in this place can identify with the place of Jesus saved me from fill in the blank. I mean, some of you, it wasn't a life of prostitution. It was pride. You were so puffed up thinking that you were better than everybody else. And then Jesus came and he, he made it clear to you the ground at the cross is level. And it puts you in a posture of humility. That's deliverance. Thank you very much. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's deliverance right there. But what most of us actually have not grappled with the reality of, what we are saved from when we use that terminology that he came to save us, he didn't even come to save us from ourselves. He didn't come to save you from who you are. He came to save you from the wrath of God. And most of us think, oh, wrath of God. We're talking New Testament, please. Yeah, New Testament because you've come under the blood of Jesus, so there's mercy. But aside from the blood of Jesus washing, cleansing, making you right before God, we are under wrath. That's Romans. That's New Testament. The wrath of God. I actually, we can turn there. <laughs> Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18 says that uh, the implication is that we need to be saved. Oh, sorry. Let me move. One eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous, or unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This passage of scripture always gets me, especially 
when you kind of get into the political arena of presenting Christ on campus, like all of those things in a society like where we live, is even when he's, he addresses, and those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, the suppressing of truth. I mean, that's extraordinary, the way that he lays that out. But here, understanding that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. And so unless by the blood of Jesus that we are forgiven and we are covered, that unless by his blood that we are, are, are set free, that it's the wrath of God that we're saved from. And the importance of Jesus, that without Jesus we cannot stand before God. Without Jesus that we cannot stand in right relationship, in communion and fellowship with God. The necessity of Jesus Christ. And honestly, I think that in our New Testament Christianity, because we have, I'm sorry, our like contemporary Christianity, because we have not focused on Jesus in, in the right light and even with the right intensity, I oftentimes think what happens is some, most of us kind of revert actually to Old Testament. If you think about in the Old Testament, because the, in Jewish culture, they had an awareness of God, they were taught the fear of God, they definitely made sacrifice to God. Many of us almost revert back to that place where we have a, an awareness of him. We make the sacrifice. We'll, you know, we'll come to prayer. We'll do all that. But we actually let, are left nagging almost with a feeling of, I don't know God the way that I'd like to. Or you almost don't feel the presence of God the way that you would desire to. Or you feel like you don't hear God as clearly as you would like to. I, I venture to say that even that gap and that distance between what we know is available and what we are experiencing is the issue of Jesus. That in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. In Jesus Christ. That that is where we find the fullness of the Godhead. For the, I don't know how many of you are actually familiar with Sozo at all. Anybody in the room familiar with Sozo? It's actually amazing because part of what they teach is that, and I know some of you are kind of like, uh, like when I say this, you're like, I'm not sure that applies to me. I can almost guarantee that it does, because I don't think that there's anybody that ever, once you really kind of get in touch, falls outside the boundaries. But basically what they teach is that your perception, your view, your understanding, and even your relationship with your father is, unless there's a place of healing and breakthrough and deliverance, it's actually how you view the Father God. So, like, if you if you just take a few minutes and think, like, the first thing that comes to my mind for my dad that, you know, if you're thinking, he's comforting, he's understanding, he always listens to me, you know, all of those kind of things, is that's probably your perception of God, is that he's very easy to approach, he's always available, all of those things. But if your first inclination when you think about your dad is, he was distant, he was cold, he never approved of me. In many ways, probably when you think about God the Father, is you actually feel those feelings in some way that he's, he's, he disapproves of you. There's never the understanding that you are approved of. And then, actually, our relationship with our mother as it relates to the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is our comforter. That, and, you know, it kind of works in both, in both avenues, because, you know, oftentimes you can actually, like, I now, thank you, Jesus, have a wonderful relationship with my father. He's far <laughs> more nurturing now than he was even as I was a child. I mean, it's changed dramatically, but it's because of Jesus. And it, it is even because of me walking in forgiveness 
and being able to demonstrate the love of God to him that actually bridged the gap. So it's the power of the cross. But if you think about even your mother and your relationship with your mother, I mean, if it's the kind of thing of like, well, she's present and like there, but we never really talk. In many ways, that's actually probably your relationship with the Holy Spirit. You know that the Holy Spirit's there. You know that the Holy Spirit's present, but you actually never talk and converse and relate to the Holy Spirit. And then when it, as it relates to Jesus, many times the way that it is is our relationship with our siblings or even our peers. That the way that we relate with siblings and peers is actually how we relate and interface with Jesus. So if you're someone that is actually very isolated in relationship, that with peers, you actually never feel like you have a very intimate conversation. You're kind of like, oh, my, my peer relationship, I don't know, I build a relationship, then I lose it, and then I move on to the next one. In many ways, that's probably how you feel even with Jesus, is that there's a limited amount of connection and transparency between you. I mean, the, the way that it actually, but when you look at those things, it's extraordinary because on one level or another, most of us, because of those relationships, either God the Father, you are completely comfortable with, and that is the way that you choose to relate to the Godhead. And the other two, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, are almost completely null and void to you. Like, I always talk to God, I'm aware of God's presence, I, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit are almost obsolete for me. Or the opposite could be true. There's those people that when they pray, they talk to the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit is where they relate. Like they, they feel it. Like they feel the warmth, the comfort. Like I know the Holy Spirit's my helper. I get that. Like I'm living in that reality right there. But the rest of it, God the Father, I don't know, kind of seems like he wants to beat me with a stick. You know, kind of. <laughs> you know, like there's that, that place where, and, this, and to be honest, there's almost like one of the characters of the Godhead that almost appeals to you emotionally. Like you can tell in scripture, when you get there, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm there right now. And then you move on to a new reality in scripture and you're like, that is so foreign to me, it almost creeps me out. Like that's just, I don't get that, and who really does? You know, there's just a, there's a gap that, that you're just not... But where it comes to Jesus is that understanding, because Jesus is our topic today, that understanding of how you relate and how you... Pres- I mean, if you always felt rejected with your siblings, like you were the black sheep type of, you know, that thing, oftentimes your relationship with Jesus, you actually just don't know how to relate. You're like, oh, he's the perfect son. I'm not so perfect. <laughs> you know, like that whole place of like, he, God favors him and I'm seen as... The extraordinary thing is that when you actually begin to see... As far as how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit view you and you relate and relate to you, and even through Scripture, that you're able to receive that understanding. I mean, the, I think the most liberating thing that you can actually read in Scripture is actually through John 17 and other places, is the understanding where he says that the same love that I have for you, I have for them. Is that, like, incredible to think about? The same love and passion that God the Father has for God the Son. They're, like, in perfect unity. There is no discord, perfect agreement. They are one mind, one heart. I mean, for all of eternity. I mean, that's the extraordinary thing, too. It wasn't like Jesus was just, like, thought up. 
like one day we're like, oh, mankind really needs a solution. Let's think something up. Okay, Jesus, zap them. You know, it, it wasn't like he was just thought up one day. Before the foundations of the earth. I mean, when you actually read, as far as even the throne of God, that he was actually living in fellowship with the Father, ruling at the right hand of God, that he was in partnership and fellowship with God before Abraham. He was before Abraham. Mm. I mean, it's extraordinary. So the love that he has for Jesus, the commitment he has to Jesus, is the commitment he has toward you. I mean, that is unbelievable. That there is no gap and that there is no distance. That because you have received Jesus Christ, you have appropriated the blood of Jesus Christ, that you are actually seen in the identity of Christ before God. I mean, that is the most liberating, and nothing nothing changes that. I understand sometimes we kind of get into the whole, like, once saved, always saved. If I sin, am I not saved anymore? I have to get, like, resaved now, like, rededicate it, like, re... Your position before God... Your sin nature, all of that, his commitment to you stands. And the extraordinary thing is, like, even if you think about sinners, before we were even saved, Christ died for us, that we would come to know him. His love and his passion that he pursues those that are lost. And I mean, really, in all honesty, although we are saved, meaning we're saved from the wrath of God, in many areas of our life, if you think about it, there's areas that we're still lost because we haven't come to full abandon. We haven't come in full agreement with truth. Each one of us have places where we actually still run from the love of God, rather allowing it to transform us and set us free. Where he's, he's pursuing you even now. You know, there, there might be that one area of your life that he's conquered, that, you know, he, he knows this one is mine, completely mine in this area. And then that other area of your life where he's going, I am still pursuing and I am still after that area of their heart that it would be conquered and sealed in my love. I mean, that is his commitment to us, which is absolutely extraordinary. The love of God. But understanding that in all three of those dimensions, and even I kind of want us to take time, like obviously Resurrection Sunday, we'll be focusing on resurrection, all of that. But even leading up into that point, the emphasis and the understanding of Jesus Christ, the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. It's not just when Mary conceived in her womb that all of a sudden Jesus came into being. That's when he was incarnate. But even like A.W. Tozer says, you can't even begin to venture and understand the incarnate Christ until you've come to grips with the pre-existence of Christ. That he always was and forever will be. It's extraordinary. It's mysterious. I actually love, Jonathan Edwards says, I am far from pretending to explain the Trinity, so far as to render it no longer a mystery. I, I think it to be the highest and deepest of all divine mysteries still. That's what Jonathan Edwards said, that it's a mystery. That as much as, because some of you are, you know, my mom actually had like the best illustration when I was little. I can remember being little, I'm like, I don't get it. Like they're the same, but they're different. So what does that look like? I remember she actually had an apple and she just happened to be eating it. And she was like, well, this is an apple. She's like, if I take the skin off and the skin is off, which when, when Jesus became flesh upon the earth, she, when she picked up the skin, she said, is this still an apple? She said, would you say this is not an apple because it's been separated and now that it's apart from... And I said, no, that's the apple. And she's like, well, what about a seed? She's like, if I take the seed of an apple, is it no longer an apple because it's not in the flesh and around the skin? 
She's like every single one, the three parts of this, the skin, the, the flesh that you eat, and then the actual seed, every single one of them. And without each of them, it isn't an apple. Like you could never grow an apple. Like the, it would never be the identity of an apple. It would be like a, a morphed, dwarfed, weird thing. Like it would become its own identity. <laughs> but it, it's an apple, which is the same understanding, is that it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as far as that place. And each one of us coming to a place that we relate to, that we communicate with, and that we have intimate relationship with each one of them. Let's stand to our feet and close out in prayer.